Welcome to Senlightened, a podcast for those playing a supportive role in the life and education of a child with special educational needs. Hosted by leading special educational needs mentor Amanda Sokel, this podcast aims to guide and support carers, educators, and parents on the journey to help our little ones thrive. Hello, I'm Amanda Sokel. Today, I speak with a mother who was overwhelmed trying to find the right school for her child. So I was, you know, a single working parent, juggling all of this, taking half days off work to travel across London to go and look at a school that was entirely inappropriate. And it was all very, very upsetting. I was the only breadwinner, no significant other. And the stress was immense. That's Claire, who faced challenges not only with her son Santi, whose conditions impeded his motor development, but also trying to find the right information and treatment for him. There's no one repository of information, unfortunately. Her advice is, don't stop asking questions and don't give up until you find the right school and support for your child. Despite the heartache and stress, Claire did find the right school, one which Santi absolutely loves and looks forward to going to every day. I hope you enjoy Claire's story, which is both practical and inspiring. I've known Claire for, gosh, a long time. We first met when I think I was about 25 and we were working together. Our lives took us on very different paths, didn't they? And we reconnected a few years ago, having realised that we've both gone on a similar, but not entirely identical journey. So Claire, tell me, Where were you in the world when your special educational needs journey first started? Well, I'd moved back from Barcelona as a single mum with my son, Santi, when he was 14 months old. And it took me a few months to get an appointment with a health visitor, which you don't get offered out in Spain. And so by the point that he was around 18 months, I'd say, I started to become aware of the fact that he wasn't developing as one would hope physically. And I have to say, it was a a terrible shock because I'd already just come out of a broken relationship and moved country and then to sort of find out that he wasn't reaching his early milestones was a bit of a slap in the face, to be honest, which created a lot of uh, emotional turmoil for me in the early days. So he was not quite two when I really started delving into it all about that age. You said that you didn't have access to a health visitor in Spain. So were you actually unaware? before you came back to the UK that that things weren't quite right? I was unaware, yeah. I mean, I was going through a breakup and it was particularly nasty and obviously relocating country was logistically difficult. So I was sort of juggling all of that alongside Santi on my own. And I hadn't had any experience really firsthand of other babies. So I didn't really have any kind of comparison and in Spain, you you actually get a paediatrician. Here, you just sort of get a GP or what have you. But I think one of the reasons you don't get a health visitor is you actually get access to a paediatrician there. And, you know, with my Spanish and what I could understand, she was under the impression that as long as he was moving around, which he was, he was able to roll, then everything was fine. However, he was a very floppy baby. And as I later became to realise, you know, he didn't have muscle tone he had hypermobile joints and he had lots of other physical issues that were impeding his ability to develop and to reach those early milestones so even things like sitting up or crawling or 
holding his neck and things like that, I hadn't really appreciated because I didn't have that comparison in those early days where he was at on that developmental curve. And it was only because of the original checkup here with the health visitor, she, she literally just sort of said he's not taking to his feet. He doesn't appear to recognise that he's got feet. And it was certainly the case. And that must have been a huge realisation, I guess, for you to deal with. I mean, we all just think innately that our children will start to crawl, start to walk, you know, develop those developmental milestones, I think we probably take for granted. So what was that like to kind of realise that that wasn't happening? It was really hard, actually, because I just thought, oh, gosh, you know, I've just done all of this. And now what? You know, I, I just could not believe that, you know, my lovely little baby wasn't kind of performing in the way that you would actually normally expect. And it was so early on and it was all physical. So I had very little idea at the time what it would lead me on to. It was a question of, okay, let's get him seen by the community paediatrician. The health to referred us. So it was this massive kind of like being dropped at the deep end of the swimming pool and kind of going, what on earth, you know, is going on here? And that was really when I discovered the waiting lists and how difficult it was to access the support that I needed. And obviously, the minute that I found out that things weren't right, I was kind of investigating and reading and googling and doing all of that and trying to figure out what my next steps were frantically quite desperately actually and of course what happened well not of course but in hindsight and having got you know walked this path of send for some years now other people were downplaying it and that became a bit of an emotional roller coaster as well so I could have sort of got stuck in denial which I find from my experience many parents can easily do um, and certainly extended family members can do that because it's very difficult to accept that something you love so dearly isn't functioning basically. Yeah yeah and I think that's a that's a really important point I hear that a lot talking to parents that they are in denial for, for a prolonged period of time and there is something about that whole process of reaching acceptance, isn't there? And where you, you have to be empathetic towards yourself in order to do that. You have to give yourself some empathy in order to reach that period of acceptance. And that can take some people a very long time. Definitely, it really can. And, I, you know, it was not easy. I mean, I, I guess in some ways I'm fortunate in terms of my personality type. I have been quite a sort of highly driven and motivated character. So, of course, if you gave me a challenge, I was going to do whatever I could with it. But it wasn't, I mean, it, it wasn't easy and it was upsetting. Initially, it was, he's not taken to his feet. So once I finally got through to the community paediatrician, I discovered that he would need some assistance um, in terms of sort of walking aids and things to be able to learn how to put one foot in front of the other, which would need physiotherapy. Um, and he had prescription Piedro boots, which was essentially a boots with very strong and very heavy soles. So they kind of use gravity, as it were, to sort of weigh you down. So he then started to recognise, you know, how his system was working. And we were working with proprioception a lot. And I started to discover all of these very long words for how things <laughs> worked on a physical level with 
the fact that they, there was this low muscle tone and this hypermobility that was um, really impeding his gross motor development. And during this time, were, were you getting access to the support you needed or was there anybody who you came across who you kind of look back and go, well, that one person really made a difference at the time? Well, at that stage where he was only sort of two, two and a half, I mean, it took some months to get the community paediatrician appointment. And as you can probably imagine, because I'd just relocated country, I was trying to juggle quite a lot. I think as soon as I got into that community paediatrician, I thought, well, I'm not waiting on that waiting list for physio. I'm going to have to pay, which I did. So it became very clear very quickly that the waiting lists to be referred via the NHS system were really very long. I mean, I think it was something like a year and a half before I could be expected to see a physio and the early years are crucial in terms of that development and so I paid so we got an amazing private physio she's actually moved to Australia now otherwise I'd be referring everyone I know to her but she used to come around and I'll never forget the day that she first came around because she literally twisted the bottom half of his leg and it, it literally turned like a sausage and I could not believe my eyes. And I just thought, wow, that's why we've been having all of this trouble. So she made a massive difference because what she said to me, and I'll never forget it, was she said, actually, you're very lucky with Santi because a lot of children who have developmental issues also have other conditions such as behavioural issues or you put in a lot of therapeutic work and it actually doesn't make a huge amount of difference but with Santi she was finding that he was making great progress and that's the thing that I then came to really have to learn and and accept and appreciate was that you as a parent of a child with special needs you don't look at where they are you look at the progress that they've made And comparison to other children in the mainstream world, for example, or even in the SEND world, isn't going to do you any good. As long as you can see, engage some level of progress over a six-month period or over a yearly period, and that progress keeps on happening, it really doesn't matter where they are on the scale. So that's where I've taken a lot of my comfort from over the years, is, is looking at that. Yes, absolutely. So what was the next kind of stepping stone, I suppose? You know, you, you've obviously, you, you're in a situation where you managed to access some some support to help Santi with walking and so on. Where did you go from there? So again, I was very fortunate because a friend's mum used to be a headmistress of a special needs school. And she was also an Ofsted inspector. And so she really knew children. And she said that you need to get access to portage. So I got myself a portage worker who used to come around every week and used to show me different games that I could play with Santi to help bring along his his development. So even the simple things at the time, like rhyming songs with actions, he was finding it, you know, very difficult to locate where his arms were and put them above his head and things like that. So things that were normally taken for granted, like heads, knees and shoulders, you know, that song, heads, shoulders, knees and toes, whatever it is you know, that was something that really was not an option for us, you know, or any of those baby songs that you do with the actions. It it was very, very challenging and, and upsetting, but she made it fun. And although my family really did not accept that there was anything wrong with him, it was good to have her because there was that recognition of what I was going through. And obviously being a single mum as well, it made it that bit tougher because I didn't have another 
adult per se to share it with so she really provided me with a lot of reassurance so I'd say in the early days it was the private physio and the portage worker and then as things because once he was under the community paediatrician I got given an annual developmental uh, assessment or developmental review I forget the exact name of it so obviously well perhaps not obviously but what tends to happen in these situations I understand now is that when something like that occurs you're going to continue to have things occurring Um, and in Santi's case actually we started to unpick a very complex picture of needs so the the gross motor deficit led on to a fine motor deficit so the pediatrician referred us for occupational therapy so Claire just just explain what's the difference because I think some people find it interesting to 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 understand the difference between a gross motor challenge and a and a fine motor challenge what what does what's the impact for a child with those with those two different challenges Mm. So with the gross motor, that's all the large movements. So Santi's case, it was walking and lifting his arms above his head and being able to coordinate his limbs, essentially. And the fine motor is impacted by the gross motor deficit. So that would be things like using cutlery, learning how to do colouring in or handwriting, pincer grip and, you know, doing simple things like putting shapes into a, a pillar box things like that again which most people find their children naturally do and they can naturally play with them but all of these things were actually massive barriers <laughs> and massive challenges for us so mm-hmm. nothing was simple you know when I look back now because obviously there's been a number of other friends that have had children since I had Santi and I look at how different their developmental curve is to his I mean literally I could pick my jaw up off the floor in terms of what other children are able to do, getting in and out of cupboards and things. I mean, in some ways, I was very lucky because I didn't have to like follow him around like a shadow because he wasn't doing any of those things. There was no Um, mischief making. (laughs) No, it's not quite the same now. But back then it was quite easy actually parenting him because there was literally very little going on. He was a, adorable, um, very cuddly and, you know, all of those things. But it was just literally the functionality that one would expect on a physical level. Mm. It really just wasn't there. But there was nothing obvious to show that. I mean, he was slightly more drooly as a baby than others. But again, you know, you think, well, they're teething. They're going to be drooly. They're, they're small. But actually, that was a swallow reflex that he didn't have either, which was also due to I believe the low muscle tone so there was a picture starting to develop which was actually inclusive of gross motor fine motor eating and swallowing and later on we started to to discover even more and more things we had an amazing Senko at his infant school she was very, very sensitive to me and to Santi's needs. And actually, it was when he started trying to do toilet training, potty training. So he was a bit older than most. He'd already started preschool, so he was probably four, I guess. And he was able to train very easily for number one, but number two was exceptionally challenging. And in the end, she said, I'm so sorry. By this point, he'd also been statemented, by the way. So that in those days is what now is an EHCP, an education, health and care plan, was a statement. And the portage worker had advised me on that. And the the mum, you know, of my friend who 
used to be the headmistress of a special needs school. So it was, I was fortunate in as much as I had some people around me who were knowledgeable. And it was a question of really having to listen to them and not get stuck in denial so Mm -hmm. that I could really use my knowledge as power to find the right support for him all the way through and as yeah as I've said it it wasn't available so it did need to be paid for. So he was statemented before he started at primary school or or after he'd started? Yeah it was in in process the statementing um, when he entered so I know certainly when he hit reception he already had a statement so he had some allowance some hours for a teaching assistant at that point and then as we went through the hours were sort of extended and extended and it was the SENCO special educational needs coordinator at the infant school who sort of said to me I think you know with the challenges that we've got going on with the toileting that it's a medical issue um, and you need to go to the hospital so I got a referral from the GP to the hospital so at this point we had some NHS physio, some NHS occupational therapy. I was paying for private physio and private occupational therapy. He had a statement and now I was being referred to the hospital because of his toileting. Mm -hmm. So again, it was like, wow, you know, I'm struggling through trying to earn a living and trying to learn and navigate all of this information that really I didn't have any idea about I mean literally before I had Santi I thought you know naively special needs was one thing <laughs> you know <laughs> and then you have a child and you go oh wow like there's a whole world of you know the whole world fun. I had no idea even existed is probably what most parents I mean I, I'm sure not all but certainly I think I was in that I really had no real appreciation for the extent of different challenges children can have it is a completely different world isn't it it is and we do just take this development for granted it's just something that is just not even considered by a parent under usual usual circumstances no so yeah it was a massive eye-opener and we went off to the hospital and so he was then given a, a highly specialist pediatric doctor at you know consultant at the hospital so we had the community paediatrician plus the one in the hospital, plus the OT, plus the physio, plus the SENCO at school and the teaching assistant. And basically he was referred to a PACE clinic, which is a paediatric incontinence clinic with some specialist nurses. He was prescribed a drug called Movicol Paediatric. Um, and essentially he spent probably just under a year out of school. And when he did go to school, he was literally taking eight pairs of trousers, eight pairs of pants nappy bags you know or I was taking and the teaching assistant was taking because he was diagnosed with severe facial impaction and basically you know not to get too detailed about it but it was an overflow scenario so it wasn't obvious that there was something wrong because he seemed to be functioning in that department but it was impossible to train him and that was why Um, and again you know I think it's down to the low muscle tone We had a similar challenge and it's one of the things that if I had my time again, I would have done very differently because we had the same thing. We had an overflow situation. And as far as I was concerned, my son was going to the loo every day. So how Mm. could he possibly be constipated? And it was an area that was very naive about. And I was 
I was reluctant to put him on medication when it was first suggested because that's not my way of doing things and probably caused more harm than good and caused a much bigger problem. So we actually went to, um, there's a clinic in Dartford at a hospital where they actually, I think it's called the poo clinic or the poo nurse runs it, bless her. And she educates parents on this particular topic and what causes it and what you have to do and so on. And it was invaluable. And I wish we'd had access to that several years earlier. It's a real challenge. I just think, um, you know, from experience, we can look back and think, oh, gosh, if we'd have done this. But we all do our best until we know better. And I think that's something that I've had to accept as well, is that with Santi and with other parents that I've met along the journey who have got kids with needs, it's really about equipping yourself with the knowledge as and when you can and then trying to act on it as and when you can. And, you know, the journey is the journey and it, you just have to do your best. And it, it's never going to be what you might have hoped or expected or anticipated, but there's beauty all the way along if you look for it. That's very true. Yeah. I found out some amazing things about myself and about Santi psychologically as he went through the poo journey. As I said, it was pretty traumatic because literally the washing machine did not stop going. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was literally going through Primark pants like you would not believe going down there every other weekend and buying literally, you know, 20 odd pairs. Because the thing is, you know, using nappies was not going to be sort of useful in terms of training him. So I really didn't want to have an incontinent child. And I thought I would do whatever I can. And I really did. But then what happened there was it, it ended up with a sleep issue. So we finally got him toilet trained, but because he'd been so poorly for so long, it had seriously impacted his ability to settle down and sleep. And so we literally ended up going from the paediatric nurses to having to employ a specialist sleep consultant um, because I was also very holistic and alternative, but did do the um, the Movacol paediatric and but stayed in the question with all of the medication that was prescribed and also did the holistic stuff as well. But yeah, the sleep became a real issue. The poo was it was a traumatic journey in many many ways, but physically and mentally, and it was it was pretty horrendous. So the sleep consultant then put us on a very strict routine which was equally as disturbing and upsetting in different ways, but shorter, thankfully. And he did start sleeping through the night again. So, yeah, so it was all done in close succession in those early days. And it was really one thing after another. It was literally like fighting fires until the point where it became clear that actually trying to continue to educate Santi in a mainstream school was not going to work. After the year of the facial impaction, I managed to um, negotiate with a local authority to have him delayed a year at school because obviously I didn't know at the time what the impact of his learning deficit was, but I did know that he wasn't up to speed with the other kids and that he'd been out of school for a long time. And so therefore, how on earth was he going to catch up with the mm. rest of them and, and the curriculum and where they were at? So with the educational psychologist from the local authority who was attached to the school, as I said, we had an amazing Senko in that school. So she was very proactive. I managed to have him delayed. So he was actually positioned in a chronological year group below him. 
but it's still after that year it then it was clear you know he needed and it's very piecemeal it's very like you go you go from here to there and then you find out more you don't get the big picture all at once so then it was a question of looking into what other schools around our local area might suit his needs with the picture of needs that we had at, at that time yeah and how did you go about that because I think one of the challenges many parents have is there are often a list of schools on a council's website which are their schools and then there are other schools in the local area which may be independent or specialists that are not part of the local authorities state I suppose and sometimes finding those other schools can be really challenging because they're not very well known or not very well publicized or there isn't a central record of them how how did you approach it well I got in touch with the local authority as a first port of call and I got sent a long list of every single school in the borough which was quite overwhelming which will have included all of all of them and I thought wow God, this is a lot of trawling through I'm going to have to start doing and then as quite often happens in my life I got a sign <laughs> and uh, I don't know where I was but I literally saw a flyer for a school and I thought oh hello what's that something just kind of attracted me to it oh I know what it was they were running uh, workshops in the school holidays and it was it must have said something about developmental issues or something like that that caught my eye and I thought oh right they're doing stuff in the school holidays and, and it's at this school that I was interested in and I thought let me have a little look at that and so I did and I was kind of impressed and thought that sounds like it could be a good place to go so I, I tend to just get drawn to things. I find that if I go slow enough through life, then things do present themselves. And if I go too fast, then I miss them <laughs> in a very woo-woo way. No, I, I love that. I have, um, I have a philosophy about life, which is we need to slow down to go faster. Definitely, definitely. And what you've just said is perfect. Yeah. So that's how I found that school. Um, but of course, finding the school and getting your child into the school are two different matters. <laughs> so then I really started to become very aware of how the special needs system worked. At that point as well, we were transitioning from statement to EHCP and literally nobody had a clue what they were doing with the EHCPs. So I literally sat in a room with the OT, physio, Senko the educational psychologist, myself, and his class teacher, <laughs> and my mum at the time, you know, it was literally like a board meeting, sobbing, basically, because mm-hmm. um, it was very overwhelming and very um, emotionally challenging to one, have to confront and stare all of my son's needs in the face, but two, mm-hmm. have to insist that we needed a different kind of education. And the Senko was hugely supportive and that really would have been my saving grace. The fact that she really knew her stuff, basically, and really wanted to help us. So we, we embarked uh, upon this journey of trying to get him into a specialist school. Meanwhile, we were trying to handle the, you know, the new system with the EHCP. And then I became aware of the whole system in terms of having a caseworker at the local authority and needing to converse with them and make sure that they knew what his needs were and what we needed to do and it really was a very 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 challenging time and I pretty much got quite close to a breakdown at that point it was very hard having 
to go through all of the parenting challenges that we were being confronted with and support Santi and do, due to my personality type, potentially too much because um, it was probably driving me into the ground. But, you know, but obviously as a parent, you just want to do your very best and, and knowledge is power. So unfortunately for me, I kind of find out the knowledge and then really want to give it some welly, which yeah. I did. And so I was reaching a point of exhaustion and it was, I think it was June. I think we all know better than I, but I think it's February that the local authorities deadline is that you're supposed to have notification of this, the school that your child can go to when they're transitioning. From one phase to, of schooling to another. So yes, was it a primary school into a junior school? Yeah, that's it. Yes. The so 15th of February. Yeah. So I was hoping that we would find out on the 15th of February, but we didn't. I was sent to a number of schools that were really highly inappropriate. Schools that, you know, Santi, to look at him, by this point, he was able to play. He couldn't run as quickly as the other children. He couldn't coordinate ball games and things as well as the other children. And he couldn't access the curriculum as well as the other children. But if you were to just look at him, other than a bit of dribble, there was nothing going on. You wouldn't know anything. And the the speech and language deficit, which also became quite significant, wasn't that that obvious until you started trying to get into a conversation. But we were being sent all the way across London to schools where children were, you know, heavily reliant on on tubes and and various Mm -hmm. pieces of equipment, which were completely and obviously inappropriate and not right for him. But but this is what I was having to go through. So I was, you know, a single working parent juggling all of this taking half days off work to travel across London to go and look at a school that was entirely inappropriate. And it was all very, very upsetting. And I think it was halfway through June when he was going to a school, hopefully in September, but I didn't know what school that was. And obviously you've got, I was the only breadwinner, no significant other. And the stress was immense. Yes. You know, he was just about to break up for the summer holidays, which is hard enough because you've got to find clubs and things that, your child can actually access alongside mainstream children. I mean, it, you know, especially with Santi, because he's quite vulnerable physically. He looks normal, but he's not as strong and as as capable. So, yeah, it was like, gosh, I'm looking at a six-week summer holiday, plus no idea of where he's going to school. And my work is coming out my ears, and I really don't know how to carry on doing this, um, mm. phoning and phoning and phoning the local authority and just not getting anywhere. Mm. But eventually I I did in around the middle of June, they phoned and they said, yes, you've got him into the school that you wanted him to go into. But it it is, isn't it? It's it's really stressful. And the impact on the whole family is significant. It's not just, you know, not knowing a school for a child. It's the stress that that can create as a ripple effect within the family. So the children often are quite anxious because they don't know where they're going. Their friends at school are talking about where they're going and the behaviour then can often come home and it's a whole family issue, not just an isolated, it's, it's a system, isn't it? The family is a system and you, when one part of that family is not great, it has an impact on the whole family. Absolutely. And on those anxiety levels of the child, especially if you've got you know, speech and language deficit and things like that going on, they're not able to communicate what their emotional needs are. And so it's coming out in behaviour. You know, those anxiety levels are really 
quite extreme and all sorts of funny things went on and still do to be honest you don't really understand you know yeah we've had episodes of you know eating paper and hiding things in strange places and you know all sorts of odd stuff um and really it's it's a question of having some kind of comfort or security or control over things because exactly as you said you know all of the people around him are sort of speaking about what school they're going to and we still don't know or other kids around them can do things that they can't and it's, yeah. it becomes more and more obvious as the gap gets bigger and bigger. So we spent a lot of time talking about your journey and Santi's journey and and some of the challenges. Let's roll forward the clock a little bit now and bring us up to date Claire with with where you are now because I think it would be helpful for some of our listeners to to understand what if they're in their version of of your journey what the future might hold for them well once he was in his school which was appropriate and was getting access to the right therapeutic staff then things became quite a lot easier actually it was not easy getting him in there but it meant that I took my foot off the pedal a bit and they started to discover some other things so there were some other needs there was um ocular motor dysfunction which was again I think something to do with a low muscle tone is basically his eyes weren't able to track objects so that accounted for why he was finding it so difficult to do handwriting because not only was he you know limited because of his fine motor and his muscle strength and his core posture and all of that stuff but also his eyes weren't doing it for him either and he had sensory processing disorder and then we kind of went through that school getting the the right level of support, but then it became clear that actually the cohort weren't appropriate. So for secondary, I was looking at another transition and it was easier in some ways. I mean, it, because I was prepared for, for what was, you know, about to come up. It took years of working on the HCP and really crafting it. And obviously, well, perhaps not obviously, but you and I worked <laughs> together on that, which was a real game changer. So, um, yeah, so I think I just got to cohort. So he was in his school with the right therapeutic input and some more bits and bobs were discovered through assessments. And actually what became very, very clear whilst he was in the specialist school in the, the original one was the level of uh, assessment and reports that they could do compared to the mainstream school. Having those occupational therapists and speech and language therapists on site able to assess him was literally like gold dust because those very detailed reports were then able to be sort of inserted into sections of the education, health and care plan, which made it a very robust document, which um, inevitably meant that the local authority had to except that Santi's complex needs meant, uh, you know, a specialist provision. And I've found that since day one, as long as he can access the right provision and the knowledge base of, of professionals, he continues to make great progress. Academically, he's still very, very behind. He literally functions at a very low level academically, but he's a really happy, healthy energetic and joyful boy so he's in another specialist school now which is a secondary school 
with a cohort of other pupils, which really suits his needs. Uh, he's got a diagnosis of uh, developmental language disorder now, which every child in that school have been diagnosed with. So they've got a fantastic sense of community there and they've all got something in common. And, you know, what is in common is as well as having developmental language disorder is that they've all got something else. Yes you know, it might not be the same. So somebody else may not have the challenge that Santi has doing handwriting, but perhaps their pronunciation isn't quite as clear. You know, there's lots of different aspects to all the children there, but it's just such a wonderful, wonderful community. And he's so happy. He literally comes home every day and tells me how much he loves his school because it's the right place for him. And that's all that we can wish for, isn't it, is that our children are happy and learning at their pace I guess. Mm, definitely so it's, it's very gratifying having pushed as hard as I did um, and you know paid and obviously I was able to earn that money to then pay but it was not easy to do. It's clearly some parents are not going to be in a position where they can do that. I literally put everything I made into therapies and into private assessments. I just wanted to give him the best chance you know you know who knows where they'll end up um there are no guarantees but there are really no guarantees with anybody's children let alone kids with needs so it's as she said you know as long as they're happy when they go out the door in the morning then that's really all we can ask for it is yeah absolutely mm. so Claire if you look back over well your considerable journey it's over 10 years now I guess what piece of advice would you give to a parent or parents who found themselves in a similar situation? And, and what piece of advice would you give to a school or a teacher who found themselves with a child in a similar situation? Well, I think firstly to a parent on a personal level, I'd say, please never, ever think that you've done anything wrong or that you could have done things differently had you have done this or I think just try to be as present as you can be and accept that perhaps things aren't as you had hoped so that you're not spending years kind of wasting time. I do think knowledge is power and the sooner that you can do that, regardless of whether you've got the financial means or not, if you look into and read up, there will be things around in your local community that you can access or other parents that might be able to support you. I think that's the main piece of advice I'd give to a parent. And to a school, they're facing very challenging times in terms of resourcing and funding. But at the end of the day, children need to be educated and children have a right to an education. And I think it's a moral responsibility for a teacher or any school that they really try their very best, regardless of what resources funding is available to have the local authority, you know, take notice of, of what's going on. You know, if we all sort of brush things under the carpet, we're not going to be able to shift the system in the direction that it needs to be shifted in. So speak up and speak loud is what I'd say to everyone, really. I think that's exactly what we're trying to do here. So fantastic. Thank you so much, Claire. It was a pleasure. That ends this episode of Send Lightened with Amanda Sokel. For more information and to contact Amanda, please go to community.amandasokel.com.